welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 25 of Sleep Talk, the podcast talking all things sleep. So welcome, Moira. Welcome, Dave. How are you? Pretty good. So this month we're going to talk about jet lag. So this episode's going up in December and we often take holidays or people travel, at least in Australia. It's not uncommon for people to travel internationally over the Christmas break. So we thought a timely time to do this sort of episode about travel. As you'll hear, a couple of good interviews and we'll try and get into what is jet lag and what can be done about it. But before that, what else is going on in sleep this month, Maura? Probably mostly thinking about the holiday season coming up, I think, and it timely reminders to remind people to try not to get too sleep deprived, try not to have too much booze, try not to do everything and be all things to all people. It's a timely reminder of if we've been awake for 17 hours, we know that on driver simulated tests, we're the equivalent of about 0.08 or at least 0.05. You know, it's a really, it's a silly season, particularly in Australia because it's hot and it's the it's our it's the start of our big break. So people are one. It's the end of the year. You yeah, know, and it's, it's a nice social time. Yeah, and it is a time when we're pretty strung out trying to get to the end of the year. So we just got to make sure we avoid that combination of being too sleep deprived and alcohol. It can be a dangerous combination. Yeah. So it's a great opportunity for people are having a, a bit of a break, just to start practicing um, being a bit more still. Start practicing the art of napping, all those sorts of things. Yeah, no, I get guilty of it. I'm doing it at the minute, sitting, twitching, <laughs> jiggling, <laughs> all, all that You don't like thing. sitting still? You're a bit of a pocket rocket? Yeah. Burning you, around all the time? Yeah, in summer. general. So it is a f- nice time of the year for a bit of forced downtime yeah. to try and reconnect with the skill of doing nothing. You know, sit by the pool, chill, read a book, yeah. you know, that. That type of thing. Yeah. Is there anything particularly been going on with you in the sleep world, all your media things? and As always, a few yeah. bits and pieces. Yeah. It's interesting, though. The Often the media things we're involved with, we think it's a really good story, and then you see it come up on the website, and the heading is just some sort of disappointing yeah. heading that's just trying to get a click. And yeah. it's like, oh, I missed the opportunity really to tell yes. a good, positive health message there. Yeah. And it's been just that bit distorted so it's it's a tricky beast trying yes. to work with the media and get positive yeah. messages out yeah. all the time because even that because the journalist has probably in good faith kept the story but the, but the editor or someone else someone outside of their control has done the heading mm-hmm. or done the, the clickbait i know that's disappointing but it, but it's really important though isn't it we don't you got to just keep doing uh, the messaging yeah absolutely because we do want to make sure that there are good messages about sleep yeah. not catastrophic, frightening messages about sleep. It's got to be a nuanced and well-informed message. Because my recent request was about, you know, wanting to someone, they wanted a sleep expert to talk about magnets and sleep. And that's all I knew. And I knew all I knew is that I hadn't heard of that. I hadn't heard of any clinical trials or any sort of real evidence to say that that was something that would be good. And did a bit of reading and asked a few colleagues, including yourself. And that, and but I was about the thing is about that interview. I was happy. I said, look, I, I don't know anything about that, but very happy to talk still to the journalists because it's probably more important just to talk about that. Mm-hmm. That there is no evidence. So why is it? Where do you get your information from? Or what? Well, you know, let's talk about it. I don't think it ended up going anywhere because I probably was a bit of a killjoy. <laughs> <laughs> so I hadn't heard because it was apparently. I don't still don't know if there's any evidence, but it's apparently it was a, a good evidence somewhere. It was someone from California. So I shouldn't be disparaging till I've. But I don't think there was a, like a randomised clinical trial, something that I would consider level one evidence. 
magnets, that wearing magnets around your neck is something that would be useful, helpful as a treatment for sleep apnea. So but all I could say, report back to say, look, I'm not a sleep physician. I'm not, I don't know about respiratory things, but I do go to all the conferences and have done for many years and consult, you know, work closely with sleep physicians. And I've never, it's not a treatment that is being prescribed yeah. in Australia, at least in the medical uh, profession. Oh, well, we'll have to look into it. Yeah. But it sort of again, it might make sense if they've implanted some piece of metal in the upper airway and then you use a magnet that's going to pull that forward. Yeah, so maybe you just that. But just putting a magnet on the skin. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like the sort of thing you buy over the counter from, yeah, from yeah, somewhere. Yeah, which comes back to, you know. But anyway, let's get on with the episode. <laughs> yeah, so just to encourage people, because New Year's is coming up, check out one of our previous episodes, episode 14 which was a new start. We did that last uh, January as a sort of a New Year's episode for people making New Year's resolutions. And we interviewed Art Markman from the University of Austin about making behaviour changes that stick. So if you're looking at making New Year's resolutions over this summer, check out that episode because it'll have some good tips in it for you. So the theme for this month's podcast is jet lag. And jet lag is something many of us experience when we travel across time zones. And it's a particular issue for those who travel for business, short turnaround times, expectations of really being on your game when you're on the ground. But it's also an issue for people we see as patients. You've got a pre-existing sleep disorder already feeling a bit tired. And so you're going to be much more vulnerable to those changes in time zones or changes in sleep that can occur with jet lag. And there is some work showing that some people just genetically do well in terms of coping with jet lag and some people don't. Mm -hmm. And they're often the same type of people who do well with shift work and don't do well with shift work. And so if you've got a colleague that says jet lag, yeah, whatever, I just get over it. Sure. They they may just be lucky with the genes. Yeah. That doesn't mean it's not a problem for you. Exactly. So why, why do we actually get jet lag? So we're biological beings and essentially we're biologically designed to have an intrinsic rhythm that gets not exactly 24 hours long, but that gets resynchronized to a 24 hour cycle every single day by the inputs of light and dark in the environment around us. Yeah. So that if we're living in a natural environment and are exposed to the sun coming up at the similar time each day and going down at the similar time each day, then our body just regulates all its internal processes around that timing using those cues. So you can imagine if that's the biology, and then all of a sudden you take that biological being and you flip everything. You deposit them on the other side of the world, 10 hours time difference, which is the same as traveling from Melbourne to London or Melbourne to New York. It's really going to feel like things are all out of whack because mm. the body's going to be thinking, right, at so this sort of time, I'm going to start to increase the metabolism because we're going to be waking up soon and I'm going to be ready for food because breakfast is coming. But in actual fact, in your new destination, the sun's gone down and you're just about to lie down and try to sleep. And so it feels like things are all wrong. Mm. And in a non-specific way, people just feel not right. And it's not as if we can just quickly change from one time zone to another. As a rough rule of thumb, we can travel two hours to the west or two hours later per 24 hours or an hour to the east or one hour earlier per 24 hours. So take that as a rough rule of thumb. So five days to travel westwards to London, 10 days to travel eastwards to New York from east coast Australia. Five days to adjust, you mean? Yeah. yeah. You can about double the rate of that adjustment by putting in place some strategies such as managing light and managing sleep scheduling and meals that we'll talk talk about, but it's still going to take you some time to adjust to things. So what should people do? It's tricky. And the same strategy is not going to help everybody. 
But some of the things to include is pre-planning, and I'll come back to this, but I'm really a big fan of if you choose the right flights and the timing of the flights that they fit your sleep pattern and where you're trying to get to in terms of your destination, that's half the battle. Whereas if you choose the wrong flights, it just becomes a mess mm. after that. You're really just chasing your tail. Another thing to think about is you, you know recognising that we can only shift a certain amount of hours per 24 hours. You've got a lot of time zones to shift beginning to shift before you travel. It's also helpful just to understand the time at your destination compared to the time of your normal home environment so that you can get your head around what's the light like and what time of the day and night it is where you're going because that's important in trying to understand where you're trying to get to. So how about we hear from some people who work on trying to reduce jet lag to get some more background and then we'll try and put it all together. So the first person I got to interview was Olivia Walsh, and Olivia has just been awarded her PhD in mathematics and is a postdoc at the University of Michigan. Olivia designed and encoded the app Entrain, which I can highly recommend, a great app that helps people with light exposure in adjusting for jet lag. It's clear Olivia really loves what uh, she does, and yeah, I could have just talked to her for hours because she's just fascinating, taking a really mathematical approach to what is a biological problem and there's really nice insights more around cross fertilization so thanks for helping us out olivia with this part of our podcast okay great so when you're trying to model the circadian rhythm what are some of the assumptions you've got to make in developing a mathematical model of the circadian rhythm well you have to first consider what clock you're going to model so we know we've got a clock in the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, and that clock responds to light. But you also have a clock in your organs. So your liver has a clock, your stomach has a clock. We call these peripheral clocks. And they're pretty hot to, to study right now. There's a lot of new stuff coming out on them. Mm-hmm. The modeling we did in the app and in our research ignores all of those and focuses on the SBN, that suprachiasmatic nucleus. So the only input we're caring about, rather than food, or exercise is light. Uh-huh. And so then once you've narrowed your scope to that, you can think about, okay, what parameters in the light matter? There we're assuming two are the, the key ones that matter, color of the light and how bright it is. And then when you've got your sort of mathematical model and then you're going to try and bring it to a consumer app, did you have to soften the algorithm or, you know, what do you have to do to try and bring it from the maths lab into the consumer space? It's something people can use. Yeah, so the model was fit using data where we knew all of the light exposure that people had. Um, so somebody comes into the lab, they spend two weeks or more cut off from anything that could tell them what time it is. Their light exposure is, is carefully monitored, and that's used to figure out how their clock shifts. In the real world, you can't track people's light that way. And so we had to adapt the model and adapt how we process the input to, to guess what people's light exposure is. It's imperfect. The original version of Entrain had only self-reported light. Now we do something with your motion and your your health data if you give us access to that. I also have versions of the app that use GPS. But the biggest constraint from going from that lab on my computer into the real world is if I'm doing a research application of the model, I know so much more about the inputs than I do in the real world. So talk me through what happens. I'm traveling from Michigan, where, where you are, to East Coast Australia, where I am, in a week's time. I've got my Entrain app downloaded, and I'm going to try and minimize jet lag. What's it going to tell me to do? So the way to think about it, it's almost like GPS for your body's clock. And it's going to give you GPS-style instructions for how to shift your clock from your current time zone to the new one in Michigan. 
where you don't want to visit. It's very cold. So you should pick a different place, first of all. Um, but you will go into the app, click schedule a new trip, and it will pop up um, with a window that says, okay, where do you want to go to? What's your new time zone? And then you'll also pick what time you want to start adjusting. That's kind of like entering into GPS your destination and when you want to leave. Thing to know is if you're crossing a lot of time zones, it can be really hard to start following the schedule while you're still in your current time zone. So you might want to wait until you get to the new time zone before you start adjusting. Uh, there's a lot more we could do with the model, and that's what actually I work on right now in my day-to-day, -day, uh, to kind of, just like GPS, where if you don't want to take highways, can choose roads that take you only on back roads or where there's less traffic, even if it takes you a little longer. And so with these alternate routes, you could figure out, okay, I, I want to get to Michigan. I want to start adjusting ahead of time, maybe a few days before I leave. But I also don't want the instructions to tell me to get light at two in the morning until 11 the next day. And so this kind of softer version of the schedule is something that we're working on right now, but isn't in the current version. Yeah, I really like that sort of recognizing there's the sort of perfect lab way of doing it, but maybe impractical in the real world. So you can choose a little more realistic, but maybe not quite as perfect way of doing things. Exactly. It's, it's just another math problem. And that's what I really like about this. As you work with it and you're like, oh, I like this, but I don't like that. The answer to the, the things you don't like is almost always, well, just do more math. So the Entrain app's been out for around three years now and you get some data back from it. So what have your team learned from the app? Uh, the very first thing we did was look at the demographic information of people who chose to submit their data back. Uh, so we got their age, their sex, what time zone they were in. Also, if they traveled across time zones, what their jet lag uh, experiences were. Um, and we published one paper about this in 2016, just the demographic results initially. And so some of the things we noticed there, as you get older, sleep habits tend to homogenize. So you see a much higher standard deviation among young people in how they sleep, and that goes down in basically a straight line as they get older. Something that people have noticed experimentally is that older people have a harder time falling asleep at certain circadian phases. So they can't fall and stay asleep in as wide a, a window of time as young people can. Uh -huh. You're young, you can fall asleep at eight and stay asleep, you can fall asleep at 11 and stay asleep. But as you get older, that gets harder to do. And people think this is because of the circadian clock being different in young people and old people. And in our data set, if you look at what the model predicts the older individuals' circadian clock should be doing and their sleep diaries, we see that too. So basically, we see in the wild this trend where older people have a harder time falling and staying asleep at certain circadian phases. Did you get any idea about how the circadian rhythm responds to the instructions from the app? So the tricky thing is when we try and estimate people's circadian phase, we're taking their lighting information and we're pumping it through our model. And so I have to be, be careful to not like introduce a tautology here where we're like, oh, the model supports the model. Um, we do see a lot of things that, that uh, are suggestive of this. So if you take the model and you make up fake data, you fake lighting data and you say, okay, imagine there's brighter light over the course of the day and you pump that into a sleep model and you predict how people are sleeping, you see that people who get brighter light are expected to sleep more and go to bed earlier. 
And then if we turn to our data sets and we use actual real data now, pump that through the model, we see the same thing. We see uh, people who have brighter light overall over the course of the day, sleeping longer and going to bed earlier. And so like that's, that's one way we're, we're looking at people's circadian rhythms, always keeping in mind, we, we have to filter the raw light data through the model in order to say, ah, oh, this is what that person's predicted internal time is. I think another thing we really see is that a lot of people's circadian clocks, again, using the model, but from their actual light data are pretty messed up. So you can see people as they cross time zones who get completely waggy light schedules and that really disrupts their circadian clocks. And the next step is to look at how that disruption impacts performance, impacts mood, all these different things. And that's one of the, the projects we're working on right now is connecting that circadian disruption to these other quantities. That's really interesting. And you've talked a bit about um, jet lag and really that's what Entrain is for. But what about other applications like for people who do rotating shifts or shift work? I mean, if you're a shift worker, you're basically jet lagged all the time, which sucks. Uh, people who are shift workers, they're more likely to have problems with diabetes and obesity and depression. And then in the long term, they're more likely to have cancer. Uh, so I think something like this absolutely could be used to help shift workers. It becomes this matter of, again, changing up the math problem a little uh, to address a new problem. But it's something I think that could really easily be done and needs to be done, especially since something like 10% of the workforce, maybe more, is working nights right now. And that's uh, that's only one application of just knowing your internal time. And this is what gets me really excited. If you want to measure somebody's circadian time experimentally, uh, the state of the art is to have them spit into a tube for like seven hours in dim light. And it's so boring and it takes so long. And you don't even get the results immediately because you have to take the saliva samples and send them to a lab and then get it back. And you're like, okay, two weeks ago, here's what time your body thought it was. And so here, math modeling, if we know how your body works and we know the inputs, basically your light exposure, we can use math to make a pretty good guess of what your internal time is and then use that to tell you all kinds of things. Like, when are you going to be best at sports? When are you going to be best at performance and alertness? Uh, when is it going to be easy for you to fall asleep versus not? And all of these things are kind of mysterious to us right now because we don't have a visible, easy to detect marker for internal time. And I really think math modeling is it's going to help bridge that gap. Yeah, I really like that. So that's one of the missing pieces for me in clinical practice is being able to measure somebody's circadian phase with any degree of accuracy or any sort of relevance in terms of recency. And whilst we're working on physiological ways of measuring that, yeah, maybe math modeling's the answer. It'll be easier and quicker than physiology. I guess that's like a first-order approximation. So so many circadian markers can get masked, like body temperature, for instance. If I go for a walk, that's going to affect my body temperature. Whereas, and this, there's like a paper that came out earlier this year, the math models have been built in controlled lab environments and tested in controlled lab environments. But this paper earlier in the year put the models to work on people walking around in the real world, just measuring their light, and showed that it, in the real world, does a really good job of estimating circadian phase. So if you've got somebody and you're doing like 
an MRI. A friend of mine is working on a paper to show that there's circadian effects that can have huge impacts on MRI results. And you want to know if your patient, uh, their internal time thinks it's like 8 a.m. versus 4 p.m. Great. Thanks a lot for those insights, Olivia. So happy to have talked to you. This is really fun. So yet another good interview. Thanks. Thanks for doing that one. I could tell you two were, you could have spoken for hours, getting a bit geeky with you. <laughs> yeah, I know. I had to be careful. Otherwise, we, we could have absolutely just geeked out and kept talking. So, I mean, yeah, what an impressive, impressive young woman. She's got a, a big future a big future ahead of her, hasn't she? Well, they're going to do some great work. What do you think the, the future looks like for their work? Yeah, well, one of the things that I found really interesting is there's a lot of work going on in trying to work out a physiological way of measuring circadian phase because that's a bit I'm missing in the clinic. It's been able to measure that. But Olivia made that really great point that maths may be the answer. She's already pretty confident she could use mathematical modelling to predict circadian phase, and that gives you an instant result. I don't have to do multiple salivary levels in a darkened room and plot a curve. You just put a whole lot of data in, get a mathematical model, and bang. There's the answer. So bringing that Mm. different perspective to things I thought was really interesting. Yeah, that's very exciting. The other bit that I thought was interesting is that the way it's a two-way sort of process. So the team at University of Michigan, it still collects data from the app, which enables them to further refine the algorithm. And so that's part of this sort of new world that we're in. So, you know, as a consumer, I might be using the app for a particular purpose, but if I select and give permission for my de-identified data to go back to them, encourage you all to do that, then they can actually use that data to continue Mm. to learn and continue to to Mm. develop better algorithms. So it's not just about light. There are lots of other things that can be done to mitigate jet lag. And although Olivia talked about light, she also said she'd specifically decided not to include in their model other things that can impact on both jet lag and the circadian rhythm. Now, in the real world, if you're trying to actually transport people from one side of the world to the other, you can't ignore those things. So that's where Qantas, who's been an airline that's flying long haul and soon ultra long haul for decades, have an interest in trying to mitigate the effects of jet lag so that their customers can arrive fresh and feel ready to go. And for the first time in early 2018, they'll be launching a flight from Australia to London, direct from Perth to London, so an ultra long haul flight. And it's actually... Rather than it being a spoken hub sort of model flight where, you know, everyone flies into Singapore or Dubai and people are going to then get off and go to different destinations, it's the first time people are just going to, everyone's going to the same place. So you can basically plan that everyone gets on the plane in Perth. You can start to adjust them to London time and London conditions because, you know, that's where they're going. They're all going to the one place. So it creates a unique opportunity for Qantas in terms of how they design their product and think about what they're going to do to be able to get people from Australia to London at least feeling as if the effects of jet lag are somewhat mitigated. Mm. So to look at that, I had the chance to talk to Phil Caps, and Phil's the head of product planning and development at Qantas, and Qantas has also recently established a collaboration with the Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney with an aim to further refine what they're doing in this area. Thanks very much for giving us the time and talking to us on the podcast. That's a pleasure. Happy to be part of it. So Qantas has long been a pioneer of long-haul flight and had to be at the forefront of managing jet lag for passengers. So what are you hoping to achieve with the collaboration? So far for us, the product and service design that's gone into the 787 and the, and the product and the experience that sits around that draws from existing science that is either from uh, sleep science, 
from nutrition and dietetics, from biomedical engineering, from complex data analysis. And that's really set up a really strong foundation for us. Moving forward, Qantas will actually becoming a research node of the Charles Perkins Centre. So what that means is that we will become a platform working in partnership with some of our customers who will self-nominate to create new research. So this is stuff that's never been really looked at before in terms of the effects of travel on the human body. That's great for us because it means we'll be at the forefront of designing product and service that continues to, to improve the experience of customers, whether that's health, well-being, time zone shift. And again, it continues to make sure that we continue innovating and, and staying ahead of what the competition is doing, but more importantly, designing stuff uh, if we're going to be focusing on long haul that really resonates with customers. And there are four different themes, I suppose, of research that we'll be focusing on. One is state of mind, because we think avoiding stress and delivering a seamless, more controlled experience is of real benefit to customers. The second domain of research will be around cardiometabolic state. So this is more, I guess, the physical aspects of travel on the human body. The third domain will be on sleep and physical activity, when and where and how to sleep, and then uh, during the whole travel experience, not just the flight, um, how you might want to engage in some sort of physical activity. And the fourth is how to maximize the performance of the immune function during the whole process of travel. So those are new domains. There is not existing research that any of us can utilise from around the world. So Qantas is partnering with the Charles Birkin Centre to be at the forefront of that sort of analysis in the future. So what does Qantas do currently to help mitigate jet lag for passengers? For us, the 787 is a bit of a turning point. I mean, as you say, we've always been an airline that is operating significant long-haul percentage of flying. A lot of that is just based on where we sit relative to other regions of the world. We have uh, long held our own, I guess, built experiences through our engineering teams. We've built long-term partnerships with aircraft interior vendors. And we work with people who are best in class in terms of product design, whether that's Neil Perry in terms of food beverage service, whether it's Mark Newton or David Kayon in terms of our uh, aircraft cabin interiors, whether it's even designers like Martin Grant who are helping us out with our amenities. So all of that is done with a long-term lens. I suppose the difference here is that the 787 will now operate when it flies from Perth to London, our longest flight ever. We thought even with the great experience and knowledge we have to hand, we wanted to take a bit of a different perspective on this and start thinking about what happens to things like the human metabolism, sleep, exercise, state of mind when you start to push flights beyond somewhere around an 18-hour duration. And that's when we wanted to expand on our current portfolio, I suppose, of expertise and partnerships and, and reach out to uh, the Charles Birkin Centre at City University. Yeah, and in the future, you're planning to do even longer flights, I understand, with Project Sunrise and hoping to fly direct east coast between Australia and New York and Australia and London. Yeah, that's right. I think we've got some aspirations to be able to operate point to point in a much more non-stop fashion. We think that will be really attractive to our customers because that should cut off time from the total journey. But in doing that, we want to make sure then we're increasingly aware of what happens when you take a circadian rhythm to sort of 23, 24 hours um, in duration when you start thinking of the time at which you might leave a hotel or work and the time at which you might get to a hotel or home at the other side of the journey. At the moment, in terms of what Qantas does with flights, is managing light exposure during flight part of the current customer program? It is to a large degree. Uh, again, because of where we are, a lot of our long-haul flying has a quite a significant percentage of that duration at night. So, you know, that plays then into everything from how we design cabin lighting, 
how we design in-flight entertainment interfaces, but then also at what degree traditionally you would keep window shades closed and when you would serve customers. So all of that is plays into the current service uh, quite significantly. Again, as we start to transition into the ultra long haul flying with the 787, we've changed that significantly again with the Charles Perkins influence. Yeah, and I really like your point about it's not just about the sleep, and there are lots of other components to the passenger experience that are going to make people arrive fresher and better rested. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Again, we think in a normal human day when you're not traveling, there are a whole lot of experiences that you would do. You would sleep, you would be awake, you'd probably do some work, um, you'd have leisure time, you'd have relaxation time, you might have some social time. We wanted to make sure that we were taking into account all of those different experiences within the day, even when they're executed in the context of an aircraft flight. What we didn't want to do with a 787 is just take the service and product sequence that we would do, say, on a Sydney-Los Angeles flight, and then just stretch that out and put more white space between the service interactions. We wanted to really design it from the ground up with some really good expertise that takes into account, you know, what is the, the cycle of metabolism throughout a human day, foods that help to promote some of the natural hormones in your body that would promote sleep. Similarly, what sort of foods help you to be more wakeful? And beyond food and beverage and service, what light frequencies help to promote sleep or avoid wakefulness? How might we influence even things like cabin uh, temperature to help in a natural way, at the very least, make people feel no worse, but certainly at our best use science to help uh, customers feel as best they can and adjust to new, new time zones as much as we can influence. So all of that has gone into the design of the 787 long haul experience. Yeah, so just talk me through the practical aspects of that. What in a realistic sense is different between a Sydney to Los Angeles and then a proposed Perth to London flight as the passenger? So a lot of the elements will be absolutely comparable. It's more just, I guess, an editing or an evolution of what we would do there. So for example, we will be leaving Perth on the way up to London after 7 p.m. at night. Traditionally, any airline at that sort of time would go straight into a dinner service after takeoff. What we want to do is let customers know that whilst it might be 7 p.m. in Perth, it's probably mid to late morning in London. To help customers adjust from a time zone perspective, we want to offer the choice to dine slightly later after departure from Perth by delaying the meal service and then by slightly delaying the, the commencement of sleep. We even start to shift in those day and sleep patterns of a customer to something that be more, is more reflective of what would be in London at that time. So it's about changing some of the sequences, retiming some of the service sequences, providing choice for customers, which is really important for us. And then very importantly, as well as also communicating to customers to let them know why we're doing what we're doing. And so that's one of the elements there. Again, that's probably some of the, the softer elements of the service experience, the intangible elements. From a more physical perspective, one of the sleep physicians who is on the cohort at Sydney University working with us has worked with our principal product designer, David Kayon, the Qantas team, and also Boeing to design and develop all of the lighting sequences that are going on board the 787. It's not dissimilar to on smartphones now when it, you can have a nighttime setting which is showing you a more warm light versus in the morning where you see more cool light. We've applied that with some of the expertise from Sydney University into the lighting design on board. So at night we will be avoiding some of those cooler tones in lights and warming that up. And in the daytime when it's best to 
to get customers energized and awake, we'll be ch we're changing some of those. So all of that is actually when you have a look at it as a customer, it looks like much more of a natural lighting scenario. What's exciting for us is this is the first time with an aircraft manufacturer like Boeing that we've had the opportunity to be so prescriptive in the, the lux of the light and the temperature of the light, that the wavelength of the light that we're exposing customers to. So those are two very small examples of uh, what we've done to influence. I mean, we're also building a lounge in our new Perth terminal. Our aircraft will be operating into Perth from the east coast of Australia and then onwards to London. Also, the aircraft come in from London will be transiting in Perth. So we've designed a new lounge in Perth for customers who are transiting there um, that has a number of experiences, which we'll talk about in the coming month, which are designed specifically around trying to minimise the effects of jet lag, accelerate the phase shift to the to the arrival time zone and make customers feel as comfortable as possible. So we're really at each touch point of the customer experience, we're using some of the best science in the world to design the actual journey itself. Yeah, that's really interesting about the lounges because it is really an extension of the flight. You know, you get a couple of hours with the customers before the flight and potentially a couple of hours in transit either way where you can do some of that phase shifting as well as looking after the health and optimising functioning. Yeah, exactly. And we really tried to sort of touch as many aspects of that um, journey support as we can within that lounge. So we're, we're, that that will be absolutely reflective of the, the current Qantas brand. The interiors will look and feel like they are part of the Qantas experience, but there will be some elements of that lounge which will be designed specifically to assist customers either before commencing an ultra-long-haul flight on the way out to London or after arriving in Australia from an ultra-long-haul flight and before continuing on to the East Coast. Great. Thanks for those insights, Phil. Pleasure. So you certainly have been busy, Dave. Another another interview. Well done. Thanks for doing that. Absolutely fascinating, don't you think, that, that where our international travel, just for the um, person who's not in the pointy end, just the, the general person travelling, there's a lot more options for a much more comfortable arrival coming up. Yeah, and it was a bit insight for me into thinking about the other non-sleep aspects, mm. you know, state of mind, yeah. nutrition, movement, yes. and thinking about how you put all that together. So there is actually a lot of pre-planning and thought that goes into those aspects. So really nice insights from Phil about that. Hopefully, the, I mean, all the airlines should be probably scrambling to try to have, because the, the end product being the passenger being happier and arriving ready to work or to, to go to the wedding or to be in a good state for whatever they're travelling for. I think it's really exciting. Yeah, and while some of the new planes have technologies that can mitigate some of the effects of tiredness with travelling, like pressurisation and lighting systems, it's how you use them. You know, I travelled between Melbourne and Delhi a couple of years ago on a brand new 787 Dreamliner on a daytime 12-hour flight. As soon as the flight took off, blinds went down. <laughs> darkness when really the message from the <laughs> staff was don't talk to us just sleep <laughs> <laughs> don't come near us don't come near us and then just before we landed in delhi at six o'clock at night delhi time the blinds came up it was oh. just completely the wrong yeah. sort of circadian messaging and yes. very clearly about you're on the plane sleep <laughs> shut up don't bother us <laughs> food <laughs> yeah a little food. bit right at the start and a bit, bit right at the end but having now heard from both Phil and Olivia about the work that they're doing, wouldn't that be a great collaboration? You get mm. a, the team from University of Michigan and Olivia and the work that they're doing mm. about shifting and light exposure before you travel. Yes. 
put that as the back end for something that Qantas can offer their passengers. So yeah. you book your flight and then Qantas already has the flight details. You don't even have to enter it. And then it starts to prompt you a few days out about shifting and that could fit with the rest of Qantas's product offering about the yes. lounge and the flight. Yes. So get together, guys. Yes. Get, get in touch with me. Introduce them. Absolutely. <laughs> I'll put you guys in touch. Let's pull it all together then. We've had some amazing array of information. What are the absolute summary take-home basics of all that information? I come back to the planning and choosing the right flight because I think if you do get that right, it's, it is going a long way to managing jet lag. And so it's looking at the timing of flights, so trying to work out what sort of flights are going to fit with your internal body clock. I'm more an early morning person, so something that leaves in the evening is going to suit me better than something that leaves at midnight. I'll sort of struggle to stay up to that sort of time. So picking a flight that's going to suit where you can look at it and go, yeah, that would be a good leg where I could sleep and it's going to help me arrive at my destination at a reasonable time. There is a bit of scope in trying to choose the right plane because modern planes do allow people to arrive a bit more refreshed because of the lighting systems mm. and pressurisation. And with what we've heard from Qantas, yeah, definitely I do think there's something about choosing the right airline because an airline that really has that sort of customer experience in mind is probably going to have you arriving fresher. than a different airline. I really like the idea as well of beginning to shift before you travel. So particularly if you're trying to cross many, many time zones, not trying to do it all in 24 hours because you Mm. can't. Yeah. Recognising that maybe I'll start to shift a day or two before I go and using an app like the Entrain app will talk you through how to do that in terms of managing light exposure. And the next thing is having a plan or understanding about the light and timing, as I talked about, and the Entrain app will also help you with that. Because if you put in your destination, it'll start to be telling you what time it's light where you're going and therefore what time you should start to be getting light in terms of shifting to that time. And then to help put all those things into place through the flight, I really like having some tools. And the tools I like are eye shades, so you can block out the light. If the airline doesn't get it right and the lights are on when you need them to be off, you can control the light. Yep. Do your own, so BYO sort of light control, something to control noise, so earplugs or noise-cancelling headphones. So again, if the plane's noisy and Mm. lots of noise around you, but it's your sort of quiet sleeping time, you can just be in your own little cocoon and have your own space. And then something that allows you to be aware of multiple time zones, so clock, smartphone, watch, just something that even a few days out, you can set the time zone of where you're travelling to and the time zone of where you are, and you're really getting your head around what those two different times are. Now, there is sometimes a role for medication, and I really would use it, actually, to be honest, but I'll talk about it just because people often ask me. You know, they won't ask me about the planning and stuff. Yeah. You know, I talk to groups of health professionals, they're like, which drug should I take on the plane? <laughs> well, it's a quicker solution for time-poor people too, don't I mean, let's face it. Yeah. Because trying to entrain or shift a little bit, which I do recommend, but I do know that mad scramble before you get away, trying to wind up your either personal or work things, just to cover yourself while you're gone. That's a very, very busy time just before you travel. So one medication people could consider is melatonin. So melatonin is going to have the dual effects of being a mild sedative, uh, but also assist with clock shifting. So think of it as a darkness signal. So at the time that it's going to be dark at your destination, taking melatonin is going to help cue in your body to that cue. 
and that signal, particularly if you're in transit and you're somewhere else and you're not going to get that environmental cue. Yeah. And can also work as a mild sedative. Another alternative is a pres- prescription sleeping tablet. Now, you know, there's pros and cons for that. The pro is if you're not a good sleeper, you could dial up some hours of sleep on the mm-hmm. plane, mm-hmm. sort of take a tablet and guarantee you'll get four or five hours of sleep and not be so sleep-deprived when you arrive. The downside is who's going to look after you when you're sedated yeah. by the sleeping tablet? If something goes wrong, yeah, if some emergency or... something goes wrong, you oh, don't quite feel right. Yeah. You know, just anything. Mm. If you're really incapacitated by a sleeping tablet, is someone going to look yeah. out for you? And a little warning too about... Because a friend of mine recently did that, knocked herself out because she had to arrive fresh and um, unfortunately developed DVT... And, and a pulmonary embolism. Oh, my goodness, man. Because she was completely still for a long time. She just flaked it and didn't move and had a lot of delays with luggage. There was just a lot of – it was terrible. Yeah. And it was it – it came back down really to the sleeping pill, really. If she hadn't have done that, she would have been more awake to move around more and do her she, – she's very aware of moving yeah. her limbs around, her legs, and but just didn't do it because she yeah. was out to it. So, so I'm a bigger fan of if you're going to be – you're not going to sleep well on the flight, just – in some respects, expect that and accept that. Mm. And then just plan when you arrive to catch up, have a nap, yeah. have, have some catch-up sleep. Or if you do need to use a sleeping tablet, use it at your destination in the safety of your hotel rather than on the plane. Yeah. Yep. Now, having said that, another medication that I think is a little underused is something to reduce anxiety. Because sometimes it's not the not sleeping, it's the anxiety about travel and anticipation and things. Yeah. So rather than thinking of something to knock people out, there may sometimes be a role for something for anxiety. And although people tell me, oh, I want something just to put me to sleep, sometimes what it is is really just something so that they're not as on edge. Mm. And a medication may be better than using alcohol <laughs> for that effect. What about a medication called mindfulness? <laughs> perfect. <laughs> absolutely perfect. Yeah. I agree with you, Moira. That would be absolutely the thing to do. As long as you're confident in that skill of mindfulness, absolutely, before you, you need get to have the skill first <laughs> on the plane. So, hopefully, those tips will give you something to work with. If you're looking for more information on things we've talked about, I'll put the link to the Entrain app in the show notes. There's also a post on Sleep Hub about uh, jet lag, and I'll also put the link on the collaboration between Qantas and the Charles Perkins Centre in the notes. So what's the clinical tip of the month, Dave? Well, it sort of goes to my personality a bit, and I've already talked about it in an approach to jet lag. It's pre-planning. Being organised. Being organised. Having a plan before you go. So with jet lag, having a plan is really the key. But -hmm. it's actually not all just about jet lag. Lots of other things to do with sleep can benefit from having a plan, including taking holidays or lots of things. Lots of people I see with insomnia, it's the threat to sleep they see coming up in the calendar. Yeah. is really the thing that gives them a lot of concern or yes. a lot of distress. In two weeks' time, I've got this thing. I just don't know how I'm going to manage and how I'm going to sleep. Yeah. So having a plan ahead of time or even having an emergency management plan about insomnia can be really helpful. If I'm not sleeping well, the additional steps I will take are dot, yeah. dot, dot, yes. rather than feeling like you're in it and it's just hard and there's no way out, if there is actually a plan that's been formulated beforehand, that can go a long way to reducing distress. Yeah. So I would summarise that too as um, being proactive rather than finding yourself having to be reactive then, Mm -hmm. feeling like your back's against the wall. But if you've taken those steps to be really proactive, it it, obviously helps enormously. So what's your pick of the month, Moira? So my pick of the month is really to highlight the audience, to read up about any, any, any article really to do 
or written by or in conjunction with Steve K. He's a big rock star of the sleep world that I hadn't even heard of, I'm ashamed to say, because he's obviously highly credentialed. He's got stacks and stacks and stacks of research papers and mostly in this space of, you know, circadian rhythm and mm-hmm. chronobiology and particularly interested in even the, the genetics of our of our clock, you know, of our body clock. Just incredible, just incredible. I, he, I was just blown away by him as a speaker and just and reading about him later, thinking, well, how did I not know about him? Like he's someone who – and he was – he's someone who probably could be up for a, a Nobel Prize one day. Like that's, you know, with the, the recent Nobel Prize winning people, he's collaborated with all of them. Yeah. Like he's, at, he's, at, he's at, at that level. So that's just my clinical tip. There wasn't one particular paper I could pinpoint, but I'll put in the show notes um, pinpoints just his website or something. He's got, you know, labs, research labs in many different continents even, that kind of guy, like, he's, you know, Japan and elsewhere. I'll, I'll take <laughs> Thanks for the tip. What about you? What's your pick of the month? So There's a bit of a geeky one, but it's a treatment manual about managing sleep problems and written by Alison Harvey and Daniel Bicey. So they are both... Rock stars as well. Yeah, this is not the, geeky. This is <laughs> in, in the sleep field, and I'm a big fanboy of both of their work. Yes, they, I think they just I. write beautifully and have some really novel ways of thinking about sleep and treating sleep problems. Yeah. So they've recently published a book together called "Treating Sleep Problems: A Transdiagnostic Approach," and it is a bit like a technical treatment manual. So it's not a sort of a pop psychology book. It's not a nice bedtime read. Yeah. It is if you're a sort of working healthcare practitioner and you're working with people with sleep problems, gives you some nice practical, here's a something you could do. Yeah, fantastic. And you're looking for something else, here's a way you could assess things and another strategy you could Isn't do. That's great. Because they're probably a bit like you and I, like a bit yin and yang. Like they're <laughs> in terms of different perspective, even though we're both sleep professionals, bring a different perspective to it. Yeah, absolutely. And she's she's a psychologist background. And, and I think, is Sam Bicey medical? Yeah, he's or, a psychiatrist. Psychiatrist, yeah. So... And, but, and she's the, you know, the Australian woman, but now, but, but working and living in the States for a long time, but we can claim her as an Australian. Absolutely. <laughs> she's not a New Zealander. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wonder if she's got dual citizenship, who knows? Yeah. But yeah, she's a big star. She's probably, yeah, probably my, I'm a big fan of her. She, she doesn't know it. She's never yeah. met me, but I've, I have read nearly everything she's ever written mm-hmm. and, uh, has have been inspired to stay in the sleep field and, and from her perspective, yep. particularly that psychological perspective and a little bit of focus on anxiety and general psychology, bringing that to sleep rather than just to behavioural or biological around sleep. Yep. So I think yeah, they, those two are just what a lovely combination. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I highly recommend yeah. this, this book. So things to look out for that are coming up, a couple of sleep conferences, just the heads up for next year. So the Sleep 2018 meeting is going to be in Baltimore between June 2 and June 6. And the reason to bring it up is abstracts uh, submissions are due in by December 15th this year. So if you're looking to present some research in Baltimore, get cracking. Get your abstracts in. And a bit of a plug for the Southeast Asian Academy of Sleep Medicine fourth international meeting. So I went to the third one in October. The fourth one will be in October 2018. And it's going right. to be in the city of Lucknow, which is the, for those that don't know, it's the city of Nawabs or Kings and has very good kebabs in Lucknow. So I can highly recommend that. Fantastic. I must go. <laughs> and look out for the next episode in January, which will be about sleep in different cultures. So thanks for listening. Time to go. But please send us any suggestions at podcast at sleephub.com.au. And remember, if you do like the podcast, to leave us a review on iTunes via any podcast catcher or via the Sleep Talk app. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. Talk to you all in the new year. Merry Christmas. 
This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.